I'm Tony Perkins, and this is More Than a Game, the podcast that takes you beyond the box score and tells the Arizona sports stories you've never heard. On this episode, how a coaching legend helped shape a border community. But first, the long history of a sports stadium in a small Arizona city. In the border town of Bisbee, Arizona, you start your journey down a few ordinary concrete steps. We're below ground level, which makes it what makes flooding constant here. The steps lead to a big metal door. When Bisbee historian Mike Anderson slides it open, you get a glimpse of enduring construction, heavy reinforced walls, old wooden beams. And if you listen closely, you will hear echoes in the frame. Sounds from the oldest continually used ballpark in the United States. And, and you know, we use superlatives to describe this place and a lot of the superlatives are true. Organized baseball in Bisbee dates back to 1928. But the Warren ballpark's history goes well beyond that. Originally laid out as a sports facility for the first planned community in Arizona, the Warren Field hosted miners, soldiers, and railroad workers. They played ball there as far back as 1909, three years before Arizona became a state. Professional leagues had already been established, but hardly crossed the Mississippi River, let alone the Rocky Mountains. But the sport was already beginning to develop roots in mining towns across southern Arizona. And when major league teams finally arrived for spring games throughout the 1920s and during the Great Depression, they made regular stops in Tucson, El Paso, and the Warren Ballpark in Bisbee. Mike Anderson says that's when things really started to get interesting. Bisbee was much larger in the early part of the 20th century, and those cities were much smaller. And Bisbee also had what I call juice, political and economic clout that uh, was in far greater proportion than its size, its physical size. As you walk further beneath the stands at Warren Ballpark. So let's go in here and we'll turn some lights on. The sense of history surrounds you. So these would have been business offices for whatever minor league baseball team was operating in Bisbee at the time. And we had, from 1928 until 1955, we had the Chicago Cubs minor league and, and Los Angeles Angels, Cincinnati Reds, New York Yankees, and then the Dodgers. Not, not the Los Angeles Dodgers, the real Dodgers. The boys of summer from Ebbets Field were here. Anderson means the team from Brooklyn, which took its nickname from the fast-moving street trolleys that ran through neighborhoods in the 1890s. Bisbee's prominence as a mining town put it in a special category. Once President Franklin D. Roosevelt enacted the New Deal, one of the construction projects workers undertook was a renovation of Warren Ballpark. It was done on the same layout as the original, the grandstands are on the same plot. The field dimensions are unchanged from the turn of the century. You can still see evidence of the raw adobe workers used to form the walls for the players' locker rooms. If you look at a picture that was taken for a postcard on the hill up there, looking down, and compare it to a modern photograph, the scene is almost identical, which is, again, Bisbee's a time capsule. 
Nothing changed. It's old Arizona, pre-World War II Arizona. Now, when you go through the corridor here, you got to sort of dip your head down. Yep. And... If you're my size, you don't have that problem, but you, you guys could probably have some brain trauma if you're not careful. This part is just underneath the grandstands, but yeah. you know, what was going on well, down you. here? I will show you in a second. We have a door right here. Let's open door number one. Yep. Get it that door opens to corridors where major league players strolled in the springtime of the early 1940s. There's one sound I wish you guys could hear that epitomizes this grandstand, and that's the sound of steel cleats on the concrete. And if you've ever seen the movie 42 with Jackie Robinson, I don't know who he is, or where he is, but he's coming. You hear the players walking through the tunnel underneath the, underneath the grandstands, and you hear that scraping of the, of the, the steel cleats on the, on the concrete. That's beautiful music. Every year in the spring, they'd have tryouts in Los Angeles. Uh, they'd get all the up-and-coming players from Southern California. Those that were lucky enough to make the cut were sent to Bisbee, Arizona. What did they think? Oh, my God. But I think once they got here and realized that this is going to be a fun experience, we're going to be traveling immense distances to go play games in El Paso, Texas on two-lane roads and rickety old buses, and uh, we're going to get paid 200 to $400 a month to do this. They were down with it because when I talked to the old-timers and I talked to a lot of these guys before they passed on, what they said to a man was, we got paid to play professional baseball and girls love ballplayers. The path through the past leads to the old clubhouse. It wasn't a club, but they still called them clubs because baseball started as a gentleman's game played by middle-class businessmen and evolved into a sport that was played by immigrants, rough Irishmen and Germans and other folks. So it's fascinating, you know, the mythology. While these facilities are dated by today's standards, those who called Warren Ballpark home in its heyday would have called them state-of-the-art compared to other parks in the area. These were rough ballparks, for, and, and you know the ones that were not reconstructed by the WPA, uh, outfielders would have to look behind them to see if there was a rattlesnake coming across the field. In Claypool, between Globe and Miami, there was a field called Association Park that half of it was talc, the outfield, so if a ball landed, it just thunk, like a shot put. And the other half was hard, so if a ball hit, it went way up in the air. So this is the conditions that players were used to. Warren's history is baseball history, packed solid with the famous names of Hall of Famers, like Honus Wagner and Connie Mack. They both played here, and so did Jesse Flores in 1938. First Mexican-born pitcher to make it to the big leagues. Started his career here in Bisbee. He was from Southern California, La Habra, uh, in Orange Counties. Dad was a fruit picker. Jesse quit school at, after eighth grade during the Depression to work with his family in the fields to, to pick oranges because it was a case of doing that or starving. And Jesse broke the barrier because up until that year, the Pacific Coast League had a 
rule that said no Mexican-born players. He was sort of like the Jackie Robinson for Hispanics in baseball. Finally, you walk up the steps. This is the best way to go on the baseball field. To stand in the dugout. And there is no better way to watch a baseball game than from this level. To put your arms right here. Leaning on the rail, looking out on what Anderson calls the original field of dreams. For those of us who love the game, it's an incredible, it's, it's an incredible place because we've had, we know of at least 18 Hall of Famers who have played, managed, coached, or umpired here. And dozens and dozens and dozens of players that played on all 16 of the original uh, Major League Baseball teams. The ballpark is still in use today. It welcomes youngsters making their own history as high school baseball stars and football heroes, neighbors facing off in soccer matches, and residents enjoying community concerts. And it hosts the echoes of a remarkable link to the past, the sound of spectators who witnessed the first Major League Baseball games played in the state of Arizona. Our series on Latinos and baseball in Southern Arizona continues in Nogales. AZPM's Katya Mendoza introduces us to the Nogales High School coaching legend known affectionately as Viejo. Nogales High School won its first baseball championship under coach James Kincannon, who was known as Viejo. Between 1949 and 1973, Viejo coached baseball for 24 seasons. An obituary that ran in the Arizona Daily Star says he won 521 games in his career. He led the Apaches to 10 state championship appearances, winning seven, rightfully earning the moniker of a powerhouse program. It was said that he attracted winners and built winners. Kincannon was also a well-known football coach. After suffering a heart attack sometime between 1973 and 1974, Viejo would step back from coaching, but would continue to teach at the high school for a few more years. In May 1987, coach James Kincannon died from heart failure. He was a graduate of Tucson High School, 
He played baseball and football and would continue his football career as quarterback at the University of Arizona under the gridiron boss Mike Castile. He was a football letterman in 1941. Former Arizona Daily Star sports editor Abe Channon said, Viejo's work at Nogales High School would be honored someday in the Arizona Athletic Hall of Fame, recognition that hasn't happened yet. The house that Viejo and his wife built is now home to their eldest daughter, Celia. It sits on a hill where you can see El Otro Lado, the other side into Nogales, Sonora. She lives with her dog, Trio, who you'll occasionally hear in the background. I asked her to tell me about the name Viejo, which means old man. Yeah, I don't know, because I was only four years old, right? So when that happened, but all, when I heard that they were calling him Viejo, I, um, I think somebody said to me, oh, we love him, you know, we love him. He's, we call him Viejo. Or so, I don't have any real clear memory, but I realized, you know, when you're living here on the Mexican border, you, the nicknames are so um, pervasive. He was only about 31 years old when the name stuck. And he got a job at the Fox Theater, cleaning up, sweeping up after the, the Fox Theater closed. And then he also had a job at Santa Rita Bar, cleaning up after. Um, and then he went to high school. And he graduated, and he went to the University of Arizona, just like he wanted to do. And he played football. And then the war happened. President Roosevelt appears before a joint session of the Senate and House of Representatives and with stern vigor delivers his war message. December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. The United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces. He was in the ROTC program. And so he got, went into the war and went into the army as a lieutenant. And he also coached football in the army. There were rumblings, let's face it. There were rumblings in Europe. There was a war going on. There was already, Hitler was already in movement. Um, I mean, that's when that whole, the whole drama of trying to get the United States to come into the war. But he may have already realized that, you know, that this is the way the world looks like it's going and was prepared to go. And he, he was smart enough to realize he wanted to go in as, a, as an officer. So, and I think he had, he had kind of a natural affinity for leadership anyway. I think there was something in him that knew he could lead. He was stationed at Fort Bliss in El Paso. And that's where he met my mother because she was organizing parties for the USO. And so they met, he was organizing the boys and she was organizing the girls and they got married. In 1942, he was sent off to serve in the 1st Cavalry Division in the South Pacific. To New Guinea, 
and to the that that uh, particular theater of the war. I think it was very very hard on him because he he did he was in charge of so many of the men, but he he took it on himself to go and find out where they were. I guess it was, and when they opened up fire, of course they let the American soldiers know where they were, but he was wounded at that point. That was something that definitely affected him. He felt like he, I remember him saying this, that he, had, he had, was living on borrowed time, that he could have been killed just like the rest of his men had been killed, and he wasn't. So that was something really important to him. And I think he really felt that. Life is, you know, we live it in the moment. We live it now. I mean, everything. And I think that was part of his um, consciousness. His awareness was, and for me, I, I, I can remember that feeling about him. He was right here in the moment all the time. While Kincannon's college graduation was stalled by the war, he would later return to Tucson around 1947 with his family to finish his studies. He came back to the U of A. He had um, Pop McHale as his mentor. Pop McHale as in the McHale Center, who at the time was the university's athletic director and baseball coach. Pop McHale, I can remember being, I almost, we, he talked about him a lot. He saw him, we went to Tucson. And once he got his teaching certificate, he got his job. He was, no, he was freshman football coach. That's right. He was a freshman football coach for U of A. Then he got the job at Nogales High School. And he, we came down here in 1949. I was four years old. My sister was one year, one year old. And I think he, he thought, they, everyone thought, I guess, that it would be his first job. And it was ended up being his only job. She said that McHale had been surprised at his skill, that he had no idea that Concanon was going to be such a successful baseball coach. They loved it down here. And I think he was very um, in tune with the Mexican culture from having been raised in Tucson. And so there was that. He got down here. They called him immediately. This was after the war, of course, and he was... 31, I guess. And um, the kids just named him Viejo. Celia said her dad was athletic throughout his life, lettering in football at the U of A. But she said that his real love was baseball. It was springtime, and I can remember him just whistling. He was just so happy that once the spring came, we could, they could go into training, and we could start practicing baseball. I can feel the, the, the lift in, in the household even, you know, of how um, glad he was that baseball season was finally here. Even in the Southwest during the 1940s and 1950s, there was still ongoing discrimination. Celia recalls a memory of the times when her dad would travel with the teams on the road. I just, I remember really how intense it was. I, I remember him saying, you know, Nogales was really not considered... In Arizona at that time, and we're, we're talking 1949, 50s, there was still a lot of discrimination. This is football and baseball. When they would go on the road to out play these other, you know, these other high schools, 
And there were restaurants in Tucson that said, no Mexicans or dogs allowed. In their window would be a sign. And they'd get ready to go into the restaurant, and he would, he would push it, and he'd take them in, and they'd go, well, we can, they maybe were two or three Anglo kids. Well, we can serve those boys, but these other boys will have to take it and eat in the bus. And he would just be furious. And he'd, nope, and he'd turn around and they'd all leave. But he, and he realized it after a while that, that uh, he was going to have to make sure that his kids could be served at these restaurants in Tucson, he felt very strongly about that. And he felt very strongly about his Mexican kids also, and, and Anglos, obviously, getting a college degree, you know, making something of themselves. This was really important to him. And he got scholarships for them and encouraged them to keep their grades up so that they could go to college. He was, the, he was out of all of the kids in his family, the only one that went to college and got a college degree, and he had also gotten a master's. You know, and that was a, a very important thing for him. And I can remember that he said, one time he said, you know, sometimes the coaches in the other schools would say, oh, well, your Mexican boys are very good baseball players, right? And he would, he would say, yeah, you know, if you can hit a rock with a stick, you could pretty much hit a ball with a bat. And he knew that they had been playing rocks and sticks because that's what they played also, you know, in sandlot baseball in, in Tucson. He had a lot of pride, a lot of pride in his kids and a lot of pride in his teams. She said her dad loved baseball because of the calculation behind it, and that she could remember him sitting at the dinner table writing out plays for football and baseball on paper napkins. I was at the post office once, and the, uh, this guy, are you Viejo Cannon's daughter? He said, you look like your mother, and I do. I look very much like my mother. And he said, yeah, he said, well, you know, i got to tell you this story about your dad. He said, I, there was the football banquet, and they did every year, and it was a big deal. And they, he said, I told him, I said, Viejo, I can't go. I don't have any clothes. I don't have, like, a sports coat. I don't have anything like that to wear. And so he said, stay right here. And he went into his office, and he made a phone call, and he came back, and he said to me, I want you to go down to Capon's department store, all right, and you asked for Zelly Capen, and he said, he will outfit you. And he did. He said he got me a tie and a shirt and a sports coat and pants and a pair of shoes. And I, he said, that was your dad. Now that, and that touched me, too, that he, he was really always looking out for ways to improve their lives. And he knew what was important, of how he was, they were going to have pride, and that was what was really important. Celia shared with me that instances of strangers stopping her in public spaces around town in Nogales happened often. Former student-athletes would share their memories of how her dad impacted them. I told her how my dad remembered her so fondly. I asked her what it was like having a father who was such a well-respected figure in the community. I, I think when you're growing up, you don't really realize that. 
and I was a girl, you know, we had all of our, my sister and I, you know, we, we were doing what we were doing. My, I don't think, he, he, he did not have a boy, so he had these two girls, right? And that in itself was, it was kind of mysterious for him, so he pretty much let my mother <laughs> do most of it. She said that her dad used to sign her and her sister Molly up for singing and dancing performances at the Rotary Club and Elks Club. The way those clubs work is every month they have a meeting and they have to have to have a program. And my dad would make us his his program. So so my sister and I would dance. We had a little duos in which we would sing and dance. And uh, and he was so proud of us. He thought we were, I don't know what the other members of the Rotary Club thought, but, and same thing at Elks Club. He was a member of the Elks Club, and he was the Santa Claus there for years. And so he really got a, a, a big kick out of that. He liked kids a lot. I think in his, just his basic disposition, he liked any kid. I asked her about the latter part of her father's coaching career after he suffered a heart attack in the 1970s. I think it, it kind of shocked him to, to have a heart attack, but he didn't give up baseball until, really, until the end, kind of, of his career. But he had a really wonderful um, assistant coach and friend named Marcel Bachelier. Hop, they called him Hop. See, there's another nickname. <laughs> And exactly why, I don't know. But the Bacheliers were a baseball family. He said they were born with baseball in their blood. He just was always, and they were. There was Hop, it was Lewis, it was a couple of the other ones. But Hop was his, was his student, and then he went on to U of A and got his degree and then came back. And s- several of, the, of the, uh, his athletes did that. They came back to Nogales and... They were teachers. A lot of them were teachers. Viejo coached at the old high school from 1949 to 1981. We had a wonderful time here on the border. My parents loved it. There was, we, had, we would go out to dinner, and we'd go, there was a wonderful cafe called the Cavern Cafe, right? La Caverna. And it was just a great place, and mariachi, and then the Cinco de Mayo celebrations with the parade and the border being open, completely open for that day. And just this sense of, of being Mexican was, that's what it was, you know. So the nicknames and the Mexican culture, that just doesn't exist anymore, you know. So there was a lot of, there was a lot of that. Celia left Nogales when she got older to go to college and travel. She would return home in the 1980s when her mother got breast cancer. Cecile Kincannon died in 1985. And he was just heartbroken. Because this wasn't... Here was this man who had pretty much done what he wanted to do and had envisioned it and got what... And he had not envisioned my mother dying before him. He had not had that as part of his game plan. (laughs) And he wasn't happy about it at all. He was so sad. Viejo took up golf after his wife died, but Celia says he couldn't fill the hole that Cecile left. He just, 
he really didn't do that well. He really didn't. We, we kind of knew this was going to be the, uh, the end of him, you know, because they were really a solid marriage, you know, and he didn't have a lot of hobbies, you know. He, was, he had been a coach. He had been a teacher. That was his, that was his life, you know. It was, he, didn't ha he didn't have any real need anymore to stay on the planet, you know. It's how, I, I knew it. I knew, I knew it a lot when he... One of the last things that he said to me was, they came in, they said, your kidneys are failing. We can give you dialysis or we can put you up for a kidney transplant. And he said no to both of those ideas. And when the nurse left, he turned to me and he said, you know, this is the bottom of the ninth, Celia Ann, he said. This is the bottom of the ninth for me. And that's who was very clear-sighted in that way. Well, he never gave up smoking. He smoked. It just drove. It was just so. Just drove her crazy. He never smoked in here. He smoke outside, but he didn't. And he never smoked until he came back from the army. I mean, he, he wasn't a smoker, an early smoker, but uh, I think it was the army. I've never met any man that went through a war that came back without being damaged in some way, saddened or. Wars are tragic environments. We never went camping. He said he would never go camping. He didn't have any desire. He had slept in enough foxholes. He said, once you've slept in the foxholes, and he said he had no <laughs> camping, sleeping outside, or being and roughing it in that way had no allure for him. With his, he had friends that went hunting, deer hunting, and would invite him, and he wouldn't do that either. Didn't want to. I don't think he ever wanted to shoot a gun again. I never made that connection until right now, but I can remember that. I didn't think there was any need for that. So I think it really did affect him, the war, and and definitely. A, I don't see how it wouldn't, how it couldn't, to go to war. Viejo was a part of the greatest generation. I asked Celia how she would describe the people from that era. I don't know. You know, we, I think it has something to do with this idea of patriotism. or we're, There was no question in his mind that he, if the United States of America was going to go to war, there was a, a couple of times that I sort of heard him talk about about going, about not a, a feeling that you're, we had to defend democracy. Democracy had to be defended. Our, our life, our, once again, being in the middle class meant a lot, meant a lot to him. He was from such poverty. And he felt like the American way of life, and, and we were. Um, he was proud to be a part of the middle class, but that it needed to be defended. Part of the, of the, of the um, greatest generation and the, the, the way 
the way the men were and the way people were was that you you really did make make your own life. There was a kind of feeling that we could make our own lives and we could be creative about it. And I think that and then you come back from the war and and life is pretty good, you know, there was the GI Bill. Everybody was so happy to not be in the war. But I mean, I'm not saying that it was great for everybody. It wasn't great for a lot of people of color. It wasn't great for a lot of women. I think my mother was was really fortunate. You know, she had she had married a good man and and they were but they were they had received, you know, the the GI Bill, and they had very able to save their money for whatever it was, 10 years, to buy a lot, to build a house. But that wasn't happening for everybody. But still, the fact that we, when we got into the war, it did have something to do with pride, once again, in being an American. That's what he thought was so terrible about Vietnam. He, I mean, he... I think those men that went to defend the United States and defend freedom and to watch the United States get mired in that mess of Vietnam, um, that disturbed him. And I can remember coming back, and, and, and I was, you know, in the 60s and anti-Vietnam and all, and, and you know, it was a terrible thing happening. And, and he said it's a terrible thing happening because we're there at all. And yeah, and if we're going to be there, we should have gone in and made a war and gotten out. But to have this kind of thing that we're having to do with losing all of these boys day after day in this torturous war, he was, he was very affected by that. Celia and I talked about the likelihood of her father coaching students who may have been drafted. She said she remembers some of the boys who had joined visiting her house, or military recruiters seeking recommendations for those who had enlisted. We talked about her father for hours. Towards the end of our interview, I asked her how she felt about the person her dad was. Oh, well, you know, we loved him. We just loved him. You may remember from the last episode that my dad played baseball growing up in Nogales. He says he remembers going to see the U of A baseball team play when he was on the freshman baseball team. Oh, yes, that, that was with the coach, Viejo uh, uh, Concanon, uh, Jim, Jim Concanon. Uh, yeah, he knew the, the, the coach at the U of A, Frank Sansett. Uh, they were good friends. And when we would come to uh, Tucson to play, uh, you know, one of the teams, CDO or Flowing Wells, he, uh, after the game, he would reward us because he would take because we used to travel with the varsity, not the JV, but it was the varsity and the freshman. This is my freshman year, okay? We used to travel together, uh, and we would play uh, CDO's freshman team, and the varsity would play the varsity team uh, from CDO. And afterwards, he would, the bus would take us to uh, uh, Wildcat Field. Uh, and the reason Viejo took us there was because uh, there was a player uh, that went to Nogales, uh, even though he was from Amado. The player was U of A outfielder Johnny Glenn, who was a first-team American Baseball Coaches Association All-American 
an All-Western Athletic Conference South selection in 1972, who was drafted by the St. Louis Cardinals after his junior year. To this day, my dad has always said that the city of Nogales should rename War Memorial Stadium, where the high school plays, in Viejo's name. In 2017, the city commissioned plaques to commemorate former championship teams, with coach James Kincannon's name on seven of them. Remember how my dad said his life growing up was like the movie The Sandlot? I can't help but think of that line Babe Ruth says to Benny when he visits him in his dreams. Remember, kid. It goes something like this. There's heroes and there's legends. Heroes get remembered, but legends never die. Follow your heart, kid. Never go wrong. For more than a game, I'm Katia Mendoza. And that's it for this episode of More Than a Game. Join us next time as we stay in Nogales and look at its ability to produce pro and college baseball players, despite a shrinking population. The show is produced and mixed by Zach Ziegler. Our news director is Christopher Conover. Our logo was designed by A.C. Swedberg. Thanks to our marketing team for their help in launching this podcast. This show is part of the AZPM podcast family. You can find all of our podcasts, news, and video productions at azpm.org. I'm Tony Perkins. See you next time.